welcome to Autism Matters, the official podcast series of Autism, the International Journal of Research and Practice. My name is Robin Stewart. I'm autistic, rather I'm hashtag actually autistic, and I'm also hashtag actually the host of this podcast. Today I'll be discussing some new research on autism and homelessness with one of the authors of the work, Alistair Churchard, who is a clinical psychologist at University College London. We'll also be joined later by Alistair's colleague Victoria, who works for a rough sleeping commissioning team in a council in London. Alistair, would you like to tell us a little bit about what the paper is about? Well, so we got interested in whether there might be some kind of link between autism and homelessness. Um, After really kind of being approached by uh, people who work in the area who've um, had some kind of really just anecdotal evidence about there maybe being raised rates of autism among homeless people. And we looked at this and we saw that there really hadn't been much research done into done into this previously, really just like anecdotal reports on blogs or in um, good practice documents or that kind of thing. And we wanted to just try and find out more and see if there was actually evidence of uh, of raised rates of autism among a homeless population. And what what drew your interest to autism? Like, had you worked in autism before this or was because um, I know from, from talking to you before we started the podcast that um, you've worked in um, homelessness services. Um, but did you did you have experience of autism before doing this research? No, so I didn't actually I didn't have any experience of autism, actually. Um, over the course of doing the research, I did work in um, an autism diagnostic team in a children's service. But um. No, my route into this was really through working in homelessness services and um, yeah, just there's a kind of there's a growing um, uh, interest in research into homelessness. And I think it just seemed clear to me having a look at some of the literature about outcomes of autistic adults that in many cases it did seem like there might be risk factors which could lead to homelessness in some cases. And it seemed like an important area to research, really, um, because we know that homelessness is extremely bad for physical and mental health um, for in all kinds of ways and so if autism is a risk factor for homelessness that seems an important thing to find out more about to try and do something about really. And so what are the main risk factors for homelessness? So there are things like um, mental health concerns are risk factors, also um, socio-economic status, um, general um, uh, poor poor quality housing or kind of not not very sustainable housing and so on, obviously. Um, yeah, those are the main ones, really. And we know anecdotally, um, as well as there's also, I think, that within your paper, you um, cite a couple of papers around that uh, autistic people often experience those things. So we know that autistic people often experience um, mental health conditions uh, and well I mean I guess that the non-autistic population do as well but if you look at research it does suggest that there is a higher rate of autistic people experiencing mental illness than perhaps compared to the non-autistic community or rather compared to the non-autistic community um, and uh, we also know that um, getting jobs uh it can be very difficult for autistic people, which obviously lowers your social economic band, uh, which means that you're going to have access to poorer housing. Uh, and so I guess that those things um, do mean that there seems like there would be some risk for autistic people to be homeless, which is seems to be what um, what you're saying is happening in the real world. And so wh- how did you approach? Because um, 
I imagine that I've never worked in a homeless service, but I imagine that um, working with homeless people, because it's a broad range of people, isn't it? Including rough sleepers and people who are, you know, sofa surfing, um, that it can be maybe quite difficult to engage because the person's moving around all the time. um, And, um, you know, so depending on which kind of service they're able to access depends on how much time they're able to spend in the warm. Um, So how did you go about um, approaching um, working with homeless people? Well, yeah, so I I knew from my time working as a support worker in homelessness hostels that there's often a lot of confusion about whether it's really fair to apply a particular diagnosis of any kind of mental health concern or any other kind of psychiatric condition to homeless people. Um, And yeah, on top of that, we knew from speaking to other people currently working in the field that um, it would be very difficult to really engage people in a kind of... uh, a thoughts and assessment of the kind that you would ideally do to decide whether or not someone uh, was autistic. So we thought it was it, but we so we knew those were big barriers, and but we thought it was still important to try and collect some just initial data about whether or not this might, whether or not rates of autism might be raised among homeless people. So what we did is instead of trying to do full autism assessments with uh, with homeless people, what we did is we spoke to key workers in a homeless outreach service. And we just screened their entire caseload, so a little over 100 people, to see whether the people they were working with showed strong signs of autism, um, whether there was evidence of the kind of behaviours that um, match up with the autism diagnosis from uh, the uh, DSM-5, the uh, psychiatric, uh, um, the psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, diagnostic well. Statistical Manual. That's right, yeah. So the, the fifth edition of that, the uh, the one that's used to make psychiatric diagnoses. And so what we did is we um, we spoke to their key workers and we just saw which of their which of their clients showed strong signs of autism, not as a way of saying that these people definitely do have autism, but just as a kind of an initial way of seeing what what kind of proportion might possibly have autism. Um, what can what yeah who shows all the signs that are associated with the condition. And you created a measure, didn't you, the DAFI? Hmm, that's right. So, yeah, so we always like to have a good acronym to go with our measures. Um, and, yeah, this uh, this is just a measure of, of the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Autistic Traits in Homeless Individuals. That's uh, what the measure's about. And you tested it for interreliability against the ASDAQ, which is another diagnostic measure. Do you want to tell us a bit about what that process means? Yeah, so once we'd, once we'd identified a certain group of people on, on the DAFI who showed evidence of the full range of autistic traits that you would expect to see in someone with autism, we also saw how key workers rated them on this measure called the, the ASDAS-Q, yeah, um, which the, the ASDAS-Q is designed for use among psychiatric outpatients. And it's it's not, in terms of being a, a gold standard measure, it certainly isn't anywhere close to that, but it was it gave us some additional information about whether or not, um, whether or not the two, whether or not the DAFI matched up with that in terms of the results. And, and they did match up together really, which does give some evidence that we were identifying something related to autism through, our, through the DAFI. And that's called interreliability, isn't it? Well, so the, the interreliability was where we got um, the 
we got some additional people who hadn't done the, the initial interviews to re-rate what we'd to re-rate our answers that we collected on the DAFI to see whether or not they agreed with us, whether they whether they also thought that someone showed strong signs of autism or not. And um, they they agreed with us to an adequate level, which also shows some evidence that the measure was reliable. Okay, so you've basically you've got two ways of testing how reliable the measure is. One testing it against um, a pre-established measure and one uh, using uh, people that are blind, not literally blind, but who um, haven't met the key workers and who are recoding the interviews to see if they get the same result. Exactly, yeah. So, Victoria, can you tell us a bit about what life is like within a homeless service, like the one that um, this research was done at? Like, what what is a client's a daily life like? Well, some people use day centre services, other people isolate... Um, we commission services to get people off the street as quickly as possible, um, services from uh, outreach, day centres, hostels and supported housing. But n- not everybody wants those services initially, so we, it's often about building relationships, building trust and, and gradually helping people in their journey up the street. And also um, the system can be very unhomeless friendly can't it so if if you don't have access to your passport or birth certificate then it can be very difficult to get state benefits and if you don't have a fixed address it can be very difficult to get a job there's um i thought the documentary on bbc recently uh about homeless people in brighton was a really good insight because it really showed you kind of the frustrations that people experience but maybe you could tell us what that's like in real life yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's certainly not easy without just nothing, VB, and impacts on the health and your mental health. But we do our very best. So you can claim benefits if you haven't got a fixed address. You can use a, a temporary address. Um, but, of course, life isn't easy. So our first, our first step is always trying to find a place off the street, however basic it is, as a, bit, as a stepping stone. And can you tell us a bit about the barriers of engagement for, say, if you were going to do the gold standard autism assessment which would take a number of hours at least can you tell us a bit about how a homeless person might experience that and what the difficulties of accessing that kind of assessment might be all right yeah so um we've we've got an autistic assessment service in westminster but i know for example there's a waiting list and then it's a matter of going to the office and sitting down so of course many of our guys on the street who we um we very much suspect have got autistic they're probably never going to do that. It's that's just too much to tolerate. So, but we found a way of working, kind of um, giving uh, workers that awareness of autistic spectrum, the implications of it, and, and freeing them up to work more flexibly with people. So, some of the homelessness um, norms about the way you do key working or um, need, needs assessment, risk assessment, support planning, just saying, do you know what? Let's make this more flexible and person-centred. So that's a lot of our learning from the best practice ways of working. But um, I'm not an expert around the autistic assessment process. And Alistair, what did you do in terms of ADAPT? Because the DATI, you guys wrote that specifically for this study, and it's available when you look at the paper online. Um, What did you do to adapt it so that it would reflect um, homeless people's experiences? Mm, Yeah, so we... We, we had to kind of be quite careful with this, really, because we wanted to make as far as possible it kind of 
really sticking to the diagnostic and statistical manual um, uh, description of autism, really. But just having some like little additional questions to really to maybe pick up on particular ways in which autism might show itself in a in a homelessness context. So, for example, one part of autism is uh, inflexibility or ritualistic behaviours, and um, we were interested in whether homeless people might who had who had autism might set up their sleep sites in a particularly ritualistic fashion or something like that. Um, also, just kind of um, really being aware that things like um, difficulties with, with relationships, while that's something that you would expect to see in many people who have with many autistic people, that's also something that you might expect to see in a general homeless population as well. So we wanted to make sure that we didn't, um, that people didn't score up on the DAFI as being autistic, even though actually it was just a reflection of just living very difficult, um, challenging lives, really. And Victoria, what do you think services like the ones that you commissioned at Westminster could do better to include autistic people? Like if there are other services listening, what what advice could you give them? I think number one, uh, workers have got to be aware of this. They've got to be aware of you know this prevalence stat. Twelve percent of long-term loss status that Alistair and Morag found is really ever so significant, isn't it? it? To me, it means that all workers should have that awareness of autistic spectrum, um, so that they can make their approaches more appropriate, more person-centred. Um, the, the other thing we do is is provide opportunities to get advice from the autism psychologist um, in in the borough, and just sometimes that getting a bit of advice maybe on the way to um, the, the way to approach the person, especially if there's difficulties around engagement or difficulties in, in hostel accommodation. Often it's freeing up our hostels to, to um, in a way, tear up the rule book of traditional ways of working that, frankly, don't work. So, for, for example, I had a guy who absolutely couldn't bear the welfare checks. He couldn't bear having his door knocked on every day. They were basically checking he was alive, checking he was in trouble. But he found this intolerable. So, you know, we said, do it in a different way. You know, maybe just make a note when you boss his research or something like that. So sometimes it's changing things up, giving workers permission to change things up to be more person-centred. But more recently, rather than just thinking about um, how we help rough sleepers off the street, we're thinking about prevention as well. So we've asked our new floating support provider to specifically do a drop-in for people um, with autistic spectrums that, that can be there to troubleshoot if they've got problems. For example, the welfare benefit system isn't easy. It isn't easy at the best of times, let alone if you've got communication problems. So where people are really struggling with the telephone um, interaction or going for these and um, the, the medical assessments, just the services there to troubleshoot to prevent homelessness as well. So these are some of the things that we've done that really don't cost a lot of money. It's just really a mindset, really, having that awareness of autistic spectrum and um, being person-centred and sort of ways of working that, like I say, don't cost a lot of money. And Alistair, what's the most interesting thing you've learned from doing this study? Um, so I think I've just learned how the, the many different ways in which people who are homeless can um, present and can live their lives, really. Um, it was it was very striking um, some of the stories we heard about. I mean, particularly the um, potentially autistic people, or the people who showed strong signs of autism. Just um, in the you know in the city, but just living radically different lives, really. I think um, and ways that potentially they could be helped. Hopefully, really, is what it comes down to for me. 
so within your um, population of 106 people, and then what percentage had autistic traits? So we we split people into three groups. People who showed strong signs of autism, um, people who showed medium um, medium levels of autistic traits, and people who um, screened negative, so there wasn't really any evidence of autistic traits. And we found that 13 people, so that's a little over 12%, showed strong signs of autistic traits. A further nine people showed medium marginal signs of autistic traits, so a little bit difficult to be sure one way or the other. So, um, yeah, so I guess the headline statistic really is that 12% of this group of 106 people, of homeless, 106 homeless people, showed strong signs of autistic traits. I mean, it's important to say here, we're not saying that these people definitely have autism, but it does kind of suggest that there's a fairly substantial group out there who might well have autism, who, who it certainly says that further investigation in this area would be warranted, really. Well, I think it's really important because, like you said earlier, uh, there hasn't been a lot of research on this, um, but I think that there are a lot of autistic people who both male and female and across genders, um, you know, fall between the gaps and don't get noticed. Um, and it's, it's like that thing that, so with young people now, it's quite common for us to talk about a person going from primary school to secondary school and then their need for diagnosis becoming quite apparent, but um, because the social demands have increased. And certainly I can see if you became homeless then there's this whole system that you have to be able to navigate and that could be very difficult for an autistic person just as Victoria was saying um so I think uh, and I think also that the general population is a bit more aware of homelessness in, in terms of um putting a human face to it so like I Daniel Blake I think that that um was you know a film that kind of made people a bit more aware of, of homelessness and you know that that it's lots of different types of people so I should say that um, you can read the full article called the prevalence of autistic traits in a homeless population at journals.sagepub.com forward slash home forward slash aut and aut is spelled a-u-t if you want to have a conversation if you want to um, tweet at us our twitter handle is at journal autism uh, so feel free to get in touch thank you very much Alistair and Victoria I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of Autism Matters the official podcast series of Autism the International Journal of Research and Practice bye bye